Well, good morning, brothers and sisters and friends. It is <clears throat> good to see you all this morning. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, we'll begin reading there in just a few moments. So far in the two weeks that we have already spent in Exodus, we have been laying before us this foundation of what Exodus has been all about and its theme. Last week, as we uh, finished chapter 1, we got into the, the storyline of Exodus. And between, or between verse 7 and between 8, some huge things happened. First of all, verse 7, the people in Israel were multiplying, right? They're basically turning from a family into a nation. They were multiplying and growing and turning strong into a strong people. But then in verse 8, there, became a, there was a new king of Egypt that came to power. And it says there in verse 8 that he did not know Joseph. He didn't know Joseph, or maybe he didn't care about Joseph, or it didn't pertain to him. And so from him, right, he expressed this fear of this growing nation in their midst. And in this fear, they oppressed Israel into slavery and also are to to subdue them in such a way that they wouldn't be multiplying anymore, that their numbers would come below, below theirs, um, as well as getting some free labor out of them. But God's people were experiencing darkness. From verse 12, even though he tried to oppress them, you see in verse 12 that this oppression isn't working because they were still multiplying. In fact, the more that he laid upon them, the burdens that he laid upon them, the more children that they continued to have. And they continued to grow as a people. Right? So this king, he, he ratches, ratcheted up his, his plan and turned it from not, not only slavery and oppression, but into population control and eugenics. And his tactic was first was to go to the Hebrew midwives, right? The, the women that would help with the birthing of the, of the children. And his plan was to coerce these, these midwives to kill the baby boys before they were born. Now, we, we know this is, this is evil, but think of the, the shrewdness of this man to try to convince them to kill their own children for their greater good. Don't you want to ease the burden up on your people? Just kill these babies. How many more people can you take care of if you just sacrifice the one? But good for Sifra and Pua, they wouldn't do it. Rather, they feared God and not Pharaoh. And so we talked about the, the courage of these women and wonderful examples of, of what courage is to stand up for what is right according to God's word. We said last week that, it, that it's always the safest thing to do to be obedient to God's word. And courage is contagious. And it often takes just one, just one to stand up and not decide to go over the cliff with everyone else. And we see at the bottom or the end of that chapter that, that God honored them 
honored them as, as these midwives, and, and then honored the people as he continued to fulfill his promise into making them a great nation. So despite Pharaoh's command to kill their own children, they still continued to grow and multiply even such under such horror, threat, and fear. Let's now look to chapter 2, and we'll begin reading together starting in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, he hid him three months. When she could not hide him no longer, she took him for, took him, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down and to bathe at the river, and her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. She, when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Our story in chapter 2 goes from a wide lens to a narrow lens. It zooms in on, these, on two families in the midst of all the insanity that is taking place in Egypt. One of those families is one we've never heard of, and that would be the family, a Hebrew family. And ironically, the other family is Pharaoh's family. Now, if you look back to verse 22 of chapter 1, we see again the, the reaction that Pharaoh had to the midwives. So the midwives were basically saying, hey, listen, these women are having babies before we can even get which means they gave the women heads up, hey, have your babies before we get there. Right? And he gets angry, and he ratchets it up even more, and he says in verse 22 is his reaction. He commanded all the people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And why, why the boys keep the girls? Doesn't tell us here, but probably because the man, the males, make a good army. That's why. And that's what he's afraid of. So think about this. This is what he says. He says, we can't depend on them to kill, them, kill themselves. We're going to have to do it. 
If you see a baby, if you see a Hebrew baby, and if it's a boy, literally pick up the baby and throw it into the river. Not with a life jacket on, not with a puddle jumper on, but throw it into the river. Tear the baby out of the parent's arms and throw it into the river. Now, we don't know if this edict just came to the taskmasters or for the army, or was this for every single Egyptian, that this was now their new civic duty to do. But we need to feel the weight of this, because this isn't just a fairy tale. This isn't an exaggeration. This isn't just another story to tug onto your heartstrings like some dumb politician uses or some so-called preacher to get some emotional reaction. This is real. This is historical fact. And quite unfortunately, it is not an anomaly. This isn't something one time that happened in history. And if you studied history at, at all, you would realize that, that things like this are filled throughout history. It's not even ancient. <laughs> Mass genocides by tyrants isn't ancient. It's as recent as the 20th century. The Armenian genocide by the Ottoman Empire, genocide that I bet most of us have never even heard of. The Nazi concentration camps for the extermination of the Jews and others. Pol Pot's communist-motivated genocide in Cambodia, the Rwandan genocide, and most recently, the extermination of Christians in the Middle East, so that's 21st century now, of Christians and others in the Middle East by ISIS. And we all know, a couple decades ago, when China came out with their, with their one-child policy, that you can only have one child, and this is how they're going to control their population. But just a few years ago, China reversed that one-child policy because what they've been seeing is they had a rapid falling population rate. Now, we may not think that's a, the correlate with China because we know they have billions, literally billions of people a part of their population. But they have a huge problem because of this policy. There are now a couple generations of men who literally have no one to marry because they killed they're little girls. And how did they get there? Abortions, forced sterilizations, prison times, fines, and even infanticide. Even stories of taking children and throwing them into the river. They used fear and intimidation of punishment. The story in Exodus chapter 2 unfortunately, isn't something that stands alone. And nor is it just sensationalism. It is the reality of humanity. And here in Exodus, it is the reality that the Israelites were facing. But here in our passage this morning, as this story zooms in on some of the darkest moments for the nation, it zooms in on one family. In this particular family, it zooms in on a very dark and difficult moment for this particular family. 
Yet in this dark and difficult moment for this family, in this the harshest of times, we see the silent and mighty hand of God as he intervenes in their midst. As he is sovereignly, providentially working out his plan to deliver his people out of slavery. And why? Because that was his plan. He told them back in Genesis that I'm going to take you out. You will be delivered. So hear this, because this is how the Lord often works. He uses the most unlikely ways and the most unlikely people. You see, if, if, if this sort of thing was happening today, people facing this kind of extermination, forced slavery, baby boys were being executed. And if you were in charge, how would you handle this situation? We would handle it through a military action, through a, a rescue airlift. We would get things done. But, but as we read here, the Lord's plan was to save them by sending an infant, a baby, a child, a baby boy, to be born in the worst moments of Israel's history, in a hostile world, in the most dangerous time ever for baby boys. He would be born right then. And he would be their deliverer. But not only that, in this story, we see the most unlikely means, as well as ironic means, that God uses to then deliver this child from the seed of the serpent. So my plan this morning, as we look at this story, we're going to look at it as the whole. We're going to break it up into three sections, but I want you to see this one overarching, ongoing point and I want you to be encouraged, and that is this, that our God is sovereign. I mean, there is no other way to look at this. And in his sovereignty, he is good. You may not understand it. It may not go your way. You think you want it to go. But he's always sovereign, and he's always working these things out for our good and for his glory. And he does it in the most unlikely ways and with the most unlikely people. Which points us so far forward to the birth of Jesus Christ and the life of Christ. Back in Genesis chapter 1, in chapter 2, what happens? Well, we read it. God created. And he created the, the whole universe and world. All of creation. That includes man. And man is given dominion over this earth. And Adam is commanded to name all the animals and subdue creation. But in the midst of this created creation story, God says that there's something that's not good. Something's missing. And God created out of man a helper that was fit for him. The horse doesn't make a good helper. The dog doesn't make a good helper. A 
A cat doesn't make a good helper. Lord knows a cat don't make a good helper. God created a helper that was fit for him. And I love what it says in verse 24. It says, God instituted, he instituted and he officiates this wedding of, of Adam and Eve. And he says, therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Wonderful, glorious good things in the garden. And then we get to chapter 3. And things change in chapter 3, right? The serpent enters the garden who craftily, shrewdly tempts and entices with the fruit of the tree that is forbidden by God for them to eat from. But who does the serpent tempt? Who does the serpent go to to entice? And you, you can say it. It's the woman. He goes to the woman. Now, this is certainly no excuse for Adam. He abdicated his role as the man and to lead his wife. And when he saw that serpent coming into the garden, he did not subdue it like he should have. Instead, he was... He just stood there like adult and took the fruit and ate. But it was Eve who was deceived and ate first. And the fall came. This brought in the fall, and this seemed to be at this moment the end of everything. Creation is cursed. Sin enters the world. Death enters the world. Adam is cursed to toil in his work and would struggle in his headship, in his role as headship. In Eve, there will be multiplied pain and childbearing, as well as her desire to usurp the role of her husband. Yet in Genesis 3.15, in the midst of the curse, as God is laying out this curse, he puts in the middle of it hope. He puts good news, and he puts this, this plan of redemption. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So what is God saying here? He is saying that even in the midst of strife, that even in the midst of anguish, even in the midst of the of the effects of the fall. These things are just raining down on them. Even in the closest of a relationships that you experience those things, God says, out of Eve's offspring, one will come that will bruise or crush the head of the serpent. Even as the serpent is attempting to bruise his heel. So this is the, the theme, this, this overarching theme of Genesis that flows throughout Genesis and then the rest of all of Exodus and the rest of Bible, and we even see that today. But who are the highlighted characters? Who are the highlighted characters in our story in Exodus? There's a mother, there's a daughter, and there's a sister. All women, 
in a time when they used to know what women were. Hyperbole. All women. And they're all used to do what? To preserve a child. To deliver, to save a child. The child. The offspring. The offspring of the woman. The seed of the woman. To do what? They do what? Deliver him from the seed of the serpent. Now, historically, we know um, that Pharaoh used to wear a crown. Right? It's all kings. They wear a crown. In this particular that Pharaoh's room had a serpent on it. The irony. He is the seed of the serpent from Genesis 3.15. One of those in this line of the seed of the serpent that wants to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Enemies of God's people, plans, and purpose. It's as if God is showing us now that even though Eve was the one who ate the fruit in these Four women, five women, including Shafira and Pua. We see here God using these women to show how he is restoring. He's showing that in these women there is hope. Courageously standing before evil. They stand there bravely. No longer as ones who are deceived, but the ones who are doing the deceiving of the serpent. This is showing us that through unlikely people, the Lord works. But he is also showing us how he restores and how he renews. In these first four four verses, we're introduced to two people, a man and a woman, actually three, including the daughter in verse four, but a man and a woman both out of the house of Levi, and they get married. He took his wife. Exodus 6, verse 20 tells us their names are Amram and Yoshebed. And if we only read these details here in verse 1, kind of in context of just Exodus chapter 1 and Genesis, then they're just descendants of the man, Levi, the sons of Jacob. But if we read it as the children of Israel would have read this, through the lenses of the whole story, then we would know and we would understand that they're talking about the house of Eli, the tribe of Eli, or of Levi, excuse me, of Levi. And this particular tribe of Levi had been specifically chosen and appointed by God out Mount Sinai to be the royal priesthood, to be a priesthood. And this priesthood would represent the whole nation before God. So when they read this, this is what they're thinking. And so when they realize that, hey, there's a baby that's going to be born, there's a baby that's conceived, they understand that this baby has a very unique role that's going to come. This baby has a very specific purpose and special service. That's why those details are there. The cue is in that it's not just human human uh, happenstance and circumstances happening, but that God is working. This woman conceives, verse 2, and has a son. She's unnamed at this point. But when she saw this child, she says that that he's a fine child, a beautiful child, so she hid him. Just about every mother looks at her child 
boy or girl, and is absolutely captivated. They're in love. And they rightly believe, yet so in contradiction with every other mother, that they believe that their son or their daughter is the most beautiful of all. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That is God-given. And certainly Yoshebed would have thought the same thing about her baby. But the literal translation of what she said wasn't just that I think that he's a pretty baby or he's a beautiful baby. But the literal translation of what she said was she saw him and she said, it is good. That it is good. She's not saying that this baby is inertly or in itself uh, innately good and unaffected by the fall and sin. But what we hear in her words is pointing us back to creation, back to Genesis 1. Again, what we read, where God created the world in Genesis 1, and he said over and over that it was good, that it was good, that it was good, that it was good, and he saw that it was good. And then he said it was very good. There's a connection being made here to God's redeeming work through this through this deliverer, through this child, to creation. The the redemption that we are going to see in Exodus is seen almost as a new creation, a, a restoration. Spoiler alert, the child, Moses, a seed of the woman, will be used as an instrument of deliverance, of restoration of God's people. And as his mother sees this good. She has to hide him. And she can't throw him into the Nile. Now here's what's amazing. Hebrews 10, verse 23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith. By faith they acted, but by faith in what? Faith in the promise of the Lord that he would deliver them. But here's the problem. The problem is reality. Verse 3. Because no matter how lovely, no matter how beautiful our babies are, they get loud. They get squirmy. They crawl around, they run around, and after three months, the difficulty to hide him from death was too hard, and they had to do something. Can you imagine the agony of being in that position? With every whimper, every cry, every stirring, but they had to do something. And if they didn't do something, he would just be killed. So they came up with a plan. And this plan that they came up with actually is not a new plan. In fact, I believe what, what they came up with was something that they would often do regularly as a people at night. They wouldn't sit and watch Netflix. But they would be retelling each other in slavery over and over of the promises of God. 
and in the past of how he has delivered his people and how one day he's going to deliver his people. And in the past, so in the past of God's promises and how God is full, that is where her faith lied. Faith in the promises of God because this is what God has done. And what did they remember? I think in this specific situation, they remembered how God delivered Noah. God delivered Noah from the waters of death. So what did they do for baby Moses? They made him an ark. A basket coated with pitch, just like God told Noah to do in Genesis 6 and 7. The word basket here is the, the same word that Moses uses in Genesis 6 and 7 for ark. Build him an ark, make him an ark, and put him in this ark. And he is preserving his deliverer. And in turn, he is saving all of his people from the waters of death. And just as he brought Noah and his family through the waters of death, this is what Peter gets at. Moses being put into the river not only patterns God's salvation of the past, but it is pointing forward to their deliverance. Because about 60 years later, the nation will be delivered from the Red Sea. Almost in translation, sounds a lot like reedy sea. As she placed the basket in the reeds, and as the daughter of Pharaoh lifted the basket up out of the reeds. Now you tell me that God is not on the move here. And lastly, verse 4, the baby's sister is sent. Mama tells her to go, keep an eye on the basket, keep an eye on your brother. His mother and father were certainly placed in a hard spot, but they did everything in their power to save this boy. And doing everything in your power is not a lack of faith. In fact, we have seen the opposite in Hebrews 10, that it was by faith they saved the child. By trusting in the Lord, believing in his sovereignty, his providence, doesn't mean that we don't take responsibility, uh, responsible action on our part. Matthew Henry says, has said, duty is ours, but events are the Lord's. So right from the outset, we're, outset we, are, we are being emphasized that babies are being killed, that, that Hebrews are helpless before such a wicked king. Desperate parents are doing very risky things to save their child. But we also see how God is on the move. We also understand that this is the infant that's going to be used to accomplish sovereign purposes. And it's his mother in this story. And we also see from Hebrews and his father that by faith, they protect the child, and they place them in this ark, and they send him down river. But the question still remains for weak people like us. How do we stand? How did they stand against such power? Was it a call to arms? Was it a call of open rebellion? How did they stand against Power. How can such fragile things like a basket actually make a difference on the second longest river in the world? How? 
How could a three-month-old survive it? And yet here in these questions, we see the means by which God, how he often does, he takes the weak and he takes the foolish and he accomplishes his sovereign plan. Now, I know we're talking about babies, and we're talking about a slave family versus the greatest superpower in the world at the time. But let me give you an example of what I mean. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians tells us that the preaching of the cross before the world to the Jews is a stumbling block, and it's foolishness to Gentiles. And that truth has not changed, has it? That opinion still stands. What we, what we do this morning is archaic. It's foolish. It's intolerant, right? A stumbling block. It's meaningless, boring, small. Some would even say is flat out immoral to tell you to trust in someone else other than you. Preaching the Bible has no effect or bearing in this world. That's what Paul's saying. And that's what we see today. But Paul goes on later in verse 24. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, he said, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So what we or what the world thinks is, is not much. So what we think is small, little, archaic, intolerant, whatever it may be, what the world thinks of these things, like just, so just like in our story, a baby, a mother, a father, slaves, a little girl, a basket, a little bit of pitch, or preaching God's word, the gathering of a small church in Statesboro, or anywhere else in the world. What doesn't make sense or the world thinks is foolish and dumb, from God's perspective, he delights in taking what is foolish and what is weak and what is small, and he uses them to redeem and to deliver his people and gives them salvation to those who are called. That is the wisdom of God. What we do is not small. What we doer is not small or meaningless or foolish. The Lord uses them. In verses 5 and 6, we see in the, as the story continues, that this child isn't just sent down river, and that's the end of the story, but this child is rescued by another woman. A daughter, in fact. The daughter of the genocidal maniac. That doesn't seem like a good idea. However, we see the Lord's providence and sovereignty so wonderful and so mysterious that he can even use his enemies for his own purposes and even to be a blessing to his people. And so in God's providence, not coincidence or chance, this daughter of Pharaoh goes down to the river the same day with her servant to bathe. 
Look again at verse 5, because I want you to see all the things that she did. She saw the basket among the reeds. She sent her servant woman. She took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And then later in verse 10, she actually, she, she names him. Think about all the steps that she took to rescue, to save this little baby. Pharaoh, her father, commanded the Egyptians to do the exact opposite that his own daughter did. Instead of killing him, she had compassion and pity and rescues him. And then she sees fit to make sure that he is taken care of as if it was her very own baby. A Hebrew baby, and she claims her own. Again, this is not merely the acts of a compassionate woman, but that God has ordained this child to be rescued and saved from the waters by her specifically. And what we will see, and we'll talk about in just a moment, is that we will see this baby raised, educated, and grow up even in the house of the seed of the serpent. As we see God's providence at work to deliver this child, I want you to see again that this whole narrative is a trailer to this grand narrative of deliverance to come. As she saw the basket, she had the basket drawn up out of the river. She opened it. She saw the child. She heard the baby crying. The baby is is crying. And in the weeping, she took pity and compassion And he was saved. He was taken up out of the basket and rescued. And what's amazing about all that is it is just a teaser for what's to come. Because here is Moses' life pattering, pattering Israel's life. Because here at the later, at the end of chapter 2, we'll get there, Lord willing, next week. Israel is almost in the exact same place as baby Moses is. Cast down the river of slavery and oppression. They cry out to God for rescue. Look at verse 24. They cried out for God for rescue. And what happened? God heard their groanings. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Now, the reason all these details are here is because in them, those who have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, they are to be encouraged. God's people are to be encouraged to understand that even in their suffering or whatever it may be, they can view and see God's sovereign purposes. Moses is writing this chapter almost like an autobiography. And what he's saying to them is this, is this is how we interpret our time in Egypt. All of those bad things that happen that you're confused by, that you're angry by, and you're asking the question, why would God do this? Why would God allow all of this? And Moses is setting these things up before them, saying, but remember, remember how the Lord is always working in each detail. He is teaching Israel to rely and to trust in their heavenly father, in their God who has called them out of Egypt. But brothers and sisters, we are learning from God's word as well. 
We are learning from God's word as well in how his providence works in our lives. In the best of times or at the worst of times, even in the worst imaginable moments, we can trust that God is in control of every step of the way. He is even using his enemies for his sovereign purposes. He is working out his plan and purpose to save his people. And he's always at work in us. Now, we may not understand that. But we know we can trust him. In difficult times, brothers and sisters, it is easy to begin to think like an open theist. It's tempting to believe that God cannot. That God is unable. Or maybe thinking like an Arminian and believing that God doesn't love me because of my sin. Or I did something at some point. Or that we can't trust in God because he, he will not act or does not act. It's easy, to, it's easy to go there and to forget these things, these great truths from the, all these details and so many other places from Scripture, like Romans 8.28, to forget God's sovereign purposes. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All is pretty inclusive. And who's doing the working? He is. For those who are called... Those people whom he has saved according to his purposes. This doesn't sound like the God of open theism or even full-out Arminianism. doesn't sound like that God. This is the God who has sovereign purposes according to his will for your good. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he is also predestining to be what? Conformed. So what is his purpose? To conform you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, in order that we, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he will also glorify. Praise God. It may be hard to see. And we don't need to see. We just need trust. And I'm not saying that that road is going to be easy because from experience it is not. But we can see his purposes or trust that he's accomplishing these things for his glory and for our joy. And then in the last verses, 7 through 10, we see how God uses this sister. We introduced first to her verse 4, right? When the mother sends the child or the sister to go and watch the baby. And I'm sure she's pretty surprised when she sees who finds the basket. And I don't think she was very excited, honestly. I think when she saw that it was the daughter of Pharaoh who found out, I think she was scared. She was afraid. Because this is the daughter of Pharaoh. Certainly she's going to throw this baby into the water. But to her surprise, the baby is picked up and she goes to 
she goes to the, to the daughter of Pharaoh and she says, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? I mean, it just like pops up out of the bushes, I guess. And stunningly, the princess accepts and says, go. And it just so happens that this little girl, this, she happens to know someone who's nursing. And someone to recommend. Someone you can take this baby to and she'll feed him and take care of him. And she goes and she gets his mother. And the daughter of Pharaoh hands the baby over and says, take care of him. And she says, I'll pay you to take care of him. Who pays wages to a slave? Not only has God provided, God has delivered and and saved. Ironically, through Pharaoh's own house, as the instrument of deliverance. But even in this story, can you not hear God's sense of humor just a little bit? Let me show you how powerful I really am. You're going to pay the mother of this baby to take care of him. And then it gets better because when the baby is old enough, the baby is taken back to the daughter of Pharaoh. And the daughter of Pharaoh, the princess, she, she names him and she calls him Moses. Now, the Egyptian, the Egyptian name of Moses actually means son of one particular god of, of the Egyptians. Like Ramses is the son of Ra. But Moses, the name of Moses in Hebrew... As it says here in verse 10, it sounds a lot like to draw out. And that's true. She did. She drew him out of the river, out of the reeds, and, and, and saved him. But isn't Moses' name pointing not just that what happened to him, he will do for his people. To draw them up out of slavery. Moses did not grow up as a slave, but he grew up as a son. He grew up safe and secure in Pharaoh's court. And Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, he tells us that, that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Moses received the finest training in the world at that time. A first-class education. Historical record tells us that the Egyptian education of Moses, he would have been trained in linguistics, mathematics, astronomy, architecture, music, medicine, the law, and the fine art of diplomacy, which he executes pretty well. In other words, God's sovereign purpose for this child was to be trained to overthrow Pharaoh right under Pharaoh's nose. The divine purpose in Moses for his education was preparing him to lead the people out of Egypt. Now, these happened. No, I mean, excuse me, none of these things could have happened outside of the sovereign hand of God. Completely, time and time again, overruling Pharaoh's decree. And even what we see here, kind of making a mockery of it. 
from chapter 1 and chapter 2, there are five women all being used to foil the plans of the seed of the serpent to kill the seed of the woman. To kill the deliverer. This infant who was put in the river, can you, can you see that? Do, do you see those things from all the details of the autobiography that Moses has written for us, inspired by the Holy Spirit? But the question really isn't about us seeing it and taking it as if it's just information, but the real question is, is believing it. Believing and applying, because that's what matters. And I want to tell you why. The seed of the serpent is trying to crush the head of the seed of the woman, but it doesn't happen. And the story goes on. Moses becomes the savior to his people, and he delivers his people out of slavery. We see the progression throughout the scripture. We understand that Moses is not the savior. He is not the deliverer. Because we know thousands of years later, a little child would be born in a little small town called Bethlehem. And what the Bible says in Hebrews 3.3, that this child, he is actually worthy of greater honor than Moses. And he was no ordinary child as well. He is the son of God the incarnate, and yet like Moses, he was born into human history. Like Moses, he was, he was a boy that was, that was given a name that would match his destiny. They called him Jesus because he would save his people from his sin, from their sin. Like Moses, this Savior was, was born under a death sentence. Herod the Great, another seed of the serpent, a tyrant, as wicked as any pharaoh ever was, was determining to put this newborn king to death. And remember, he tried to do it in secret as well. He tried to tell the, the, the wise men to let them know where this baby was so he can come and worship him as well. Of course, we know the story. He wanted to kill the baby. And when he doesn't get his way, when the, when the wise men, when the magi don't go back to him, what does he do? He ratches it up. And he goes and he has all the baby boys born in Bethlehem slaughtered. Did you see the parallels here? But in the same stories, we still see God triumphing over evil. And so like Moses, Jesus also was delivered from death, which, by the way, was going back to Egypt. <laughs> In all of these events, God was working out his plan down to the very last detail. For the salvation is according to his work from beginning to end. The birth of a savior was just the beginning. Because everything else went according to plan so that in the time, in time the child would be brought out of Egypt and went into the land of Israel where he grew and he became strong and he was filled with wisdom and with grace. The grace of God was upon him. 
He lived a perfect and sinless life until he died in atoning death on the cross. And in that death, he has accomplished our salvation. For the cross of Christ is God's ultimate triumph over evil. The seed of the woman in Christ, the offspring, he has crushed the head of the serpent. So the question again lies, do you believe that? The salvation God has accomplished in history has become our salvation. And as Moses' mother by faith trusted God and he put that baby in the, in the ark, so can we. We put our faith in an ark, in Christ Jesus, who by his atoning work delivers us delivers us from the greatest of enemies, from sin and death. And he has brought us into the light of his salvation by his grace. And the same sovereign hand at work in Moses and in Israel and in Jesus Christ to accomplish our salvation is the same sovereign hand at work in our lives and in our church and in our midst this very morning. So can we apply what we learn from Exodus? Yes. And the reason is, is because of Christ. Because of Christ. And in Christ, we rest. We don't find our hope and rest in Moses. We find our hope and rest in another baby that was born. We find our hope and rest in Jesus Christ. So that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. For you are with me. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, your sovereign will, they comfort me. And all God's people say,